1: Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little bit deeper into the region's public policy challenges. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast of policyforum.net and we're based at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate public policy school. You can find out more about Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au, including courses that you can study with my regular pod co-host, Sharon. Isn't that right, Sharon?
2: Thanks, Martin. Yes, I'm teaching two courses at the moment and have some fantastic students.
1: And you're teaching as well at the moment. I am. I run a course called the Editor's Practicum. In fact, I'm delighted to say that two of my students are producing podcasts for this very series. Maya and Sean, you can expect to hear the fruits of their labour coming up soon on Policy Forum Pod and they've picked some really interesting topics to explore so I can't wait to hear what they come out with.
2: Fantastic, I think we'll all look forward to that. Today we're going to be taking a close look at the impact of technology on jobs in our region and this of course is something that we've talked about in the past. Uh, today we're going to be talking with two experts from the Asian Development Bank.
1: Yeah that's right, we've got Valerie Mercer-Blackman, who is a Senior Economist at ADB, uh, and Ananya Basu, who is a Principal Economist from ADB's Pacific Department. And they're here to talk to us about the latest Asian Development Outlook report, which is a topic we've covered before on the podcast. And this year's report reveals some pretty interesting information about the changing nature of work in Asia Pacific, as well as giving a look at some of the sort of economics affecting the region.
2: But that's not all we've got today Martin. So we've we've got a big day for podcasts today and in part 2 you're going to be talking with Liz Allen who's also known as Dr Demography about a new event series that's taking place right here in Canberra the Citizen Social Scientist series.
1: Yeah, that's right. Liz has been on the podcast before as well but I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And then in part 3 we're going to do something quite novel as well. We're going to be taking a look at some of your comments and feedback on previous pods and thank Thanks to everyone who's shared their thoughts with us. I can't wait to go through some of those. You can share with th- your thoughts with us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, or get this Sharon, because we are moving into the digital age about three decades after everyone else. You can now share your thoughts with us via email. Email. Uh, you can send your thoughts to podcast at policyforum.net. That's podcast at policyforum.net.
2: That's a hugely exciting technological advancement. Um, But now, let's welcome our guests for today. Hello, Valerie, and hello, Ananya. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us.
1: So, the annual report provides a sort of macroeconomic snapshot of the region, and each report features a special theme chapter looking at a significant issue that affects the region. Uh, We're going to be talking about that special theme shortly. But before we get to that, could you give us a snapshot of what this year's report found about the region's economics?
3: Um, Yeah, the the, uh, report actually talks about uh, 2017 being a very good uh, year for Asia in terms of growth. Um, After about two or three years of actually a decline in trade in the previous years, at the end of 2016, you saw a real resurgence of trade, not only exports, but also imports. Because as you well know, Asia's uh, trade is very, uh, or manufacturing is very immersed into what we call global value chains, which means that most of the products that are exported and imported are intermediate components into a final product. And uh, secondly, there was a huge uh, surge in external demand coming from advanced economies, which also helped the growth. So looking forward for 2018 and 2019, we generally do projections for those two years. Uh, we think that this momentum will carry on, and, uh, but domestic demand will continue to take a larger role. So uh, the region is expected to continue uh, uh, to, to grow healthily to, to uh, around uh, 6%. Uh, one of the reasons why it's going to fall a little bit in 2018 and 2019 is because China, which uh, comprises about 60% of the total income of the region, uh, is, uh, go, is, is uh, having a sort of a slight decline in its growth rate from very, very high levels 10 or 20 years ago. And this is a good thing because it's part of the sort of more financial stability and, and, uh, and ec- ec- economic um, better income distribution that they want in the country.
2: So Valerie, even though we see that slight leveling out, perhaps in China, you know, you're, you're very optimistic overall.
3: Are there particular
2: countries that um, you see with particular optimism um, moving forward into 2018 and, and perhaps beyond?
3: Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, ASEAN, so a lot of the Southeast Asian countries are uh, still continuing to boom. Uh, some of the bigger ones, like Indonesia and the Philippines, are getting a lot of public investment that is going to help growth and then boost growth in the next two years. And uh, India, which uh, has been implementing a lot of structural reforms, um, had a, some, a couple of reforms on demonetization that sort of were a little bit like teething problems from the beginning of the, of the, uh, of the reforms. But um, we expect growth to c- go up to 7.4% in 2018. So uh, South Asia, as a result, will be the highest uh, growing region, sub region of developing Asia.
1: The last time we talked about the outlook report, we heard that there had been a notable downward turn in the economics of the Pacific. Um, Can you give us an idea of what the situation looks like there now?
4: On the Pacific, uh, unfortunately, I guess, uh, while the outlook for the rest of Asia, as Valerie just said, is very good, Pacific is unfortunately not doing that well uh, because of the challenges it faces. You know, climate change, small size, private sector hardly existing. Um, Growth has actually gone down to its lowest level in 2017 since the 2008 9 crisis. Uh, 2017, we had 2.2% growth in the region. Um, Next year, we are also projecting about 2.2%, so not much recovery. Uh, And by 2019, we are optimistic that the Pacific region specifically will pick up to about 3% growth. Um, The region's fortunes uh, on a weighted average basis, of course, depend largely on Papua New Guinea, which is the largest economy. Uh, This is an economy which peaked in about 2014 on the back of resource revenues, has been going down since. That has been pulling down uh, Pacific growth rates as well. But, uh, you know, uh, we we do see uh, Fiji picking up a little bit this year. Fiji had a good year. But uh, other economies, they had middling to not very good years. Palau actually contracted and Timor-Leste also actually contracted on the basis of, uh, on the back of political uncertainties.
1: I mean, that's sort of 2.2% growth is quite different from the sort of 6% that we're talking about for... And other parts of Asia, uh, what can the Pacific do to, you know, get get near to the the rest of the, the region in terms of its growth? Uh,
4: you know, uh, the Pacific has so many challenges that getting to a six percent growth rate without, uh, you know, resource booms would be quite difficult. Um, at this point, we in the ADB certainly encourage uh, our partner economies to work on climate resilience, which is one of the major factors which affects growth and makes it very volatile. It's only April, and we've already had two major disasters in the region, Papua New Guinea earthquake, Cyclone Gita and Tonga. There may be more. So that's one one thing we we expect our economies, or we help our economies to work on, climate resilience. Um, And the other thing is, of course, we work a lot on their fiscal challenges. We have policy-based lending, which is basically budget support in... uh, Pretty much almost all of our fourteen economies at some point or the other, uh, you know in the next uh, in the next uh, five, six years, we have plans. so budget support is is an important part of our uh, engagement with them, and private sector development also we try to encourage through through our policy-based lending, but it's a slow process. It's a gradual process. If I
3: may just uh, key into that, I mean, yes, the Pacific is not growing at 6%, but very few places in the world are. Developing Asia is only 25% of the global income, but it's 60% of its growth. So... Uh, 2.2% is actually a fairly decent growth rate for some of the other economies outside of Asia and the Pacific.
2: So perhaps we shouldn't be too pessimistic, particularly, as you say, you see longer term perhaps rising towards 3%. Um, so some positive signs there. Um, but Anani, you, you mentioned climate resilience, and clearly that's you know incredibly important for the Pacific. Can you just explain a little bit what you mean by climate resilience when you're talking about countries um, thinking in that way?
4: Um, We at ADB take a fairly broad view of climate resilience and we are working with our partner economies on a number of fronts, you know, whatever they they want to do. For example, uh, last year or the year before that, I forget exactly, uh, we approved a a port project in Nauru. Uh, Basically, that's going to try and help them construct a climate resilient seaport. Uh, Currently, their seaport is closed three months in the year, which is not helping uh, and this climate resiliency port is going to be o- operating all year we hope and construction is expected to begin uh, I guess by by later this year or early next year um, in a number of countries like Fiji Tuvalu uh, through our lending programs we we help the government to Climate proof infrastructure, for example in Tuvalu we are working on a technical assistance with the government to help them uh, design building codes which are more disaster resilient so and most recently uh a fairly innovative for for ADB at least um, we have approved in four of our countries Cook Islands samoa Tuvalu and tonga uh, climate uh sorry um, Disaster resilience, uh, contingent financing, contingent financing for disaster resilience. So basically what that means is we approve a certain amount of money for them and the government doesn't draw it down. There's no disbursement immediately, uh, unlike in other loans. But in case there's a disaster, a natural disaster and a state of emergency is declared, uh, the government can immediately draw it down. So it becomes a ready source of immediate disaster response, which is often where the governments don't have money because immediately the next day is where you you really need the money and after cyclone gita in tonga we actually dispersed within one day one day of the government's request because we had already approved contingent financing for them so that was quite a record for for us and uh, the government was happy with us so and we are processing one for palau next year so hopefully this is something that's expanding in the pacific
1: i'd like to go and move on to talk about the theme of uh, this year's report which is the impact of technology on jobs in the region and the future of work is a topic we've touched on frequently on the podcast. What does the report tell us about how technology is changing employment in the region? Uh,
3: Yes indeed and actually uh, this as you say is not only here but uh, this idea of the technology anxiety uh, because this new fourth industrial revolution is changing things it's happened before with the other industrial revolutions, but now it's just so much faster that it's uh, really people don't even. Don't, you're not getting a chance to react. So what we uh, are following a lot of research that's been done. I think this is the first research that's been done, really, a sort of a broad on developing Asia specifically. And uh, the report's findings are relatively optimistic, uh, except for one caveat, which I'll mention. And there are four compelling reasons to remain optimistic about developing Asia's growth prospect. Uh, first of all, new technologies often automate only some tasks of the job, so it's not like every there's going to be mass unemployment. Uh, The best example is a a bank teller. Uh, About 20 years ago, when ATM machines became popular, uh, they thought that bank tellers would be out of jobs. But in fact, what's actually happened is that instead of spending their time counting money, they can spend more time with customer relationships, which are very important for banks. Um, the other thing is the technological feasibility does not guarantee economic feasibility. So we have some data that we show about, uh, employment in manufacturing, and we see that the sectors in manufacturing that use the most robots in developing Asia are already very capital intensive. They don't have that many workers, for example, automobiles and, um, metallurgy, uh, whereas, um, clothing and footwear and, and textiles uh, where employment has been very large and has actually uh, lifted whole groups of out of poverty uh, that's still cost effective it's not cost effective I'm sorry to use uh, a, a lot of automation in, in many of the key areas so uh, employment is still quite large there and it will take a long time before that changes. Uh, the third issue on rising income and demand, basically that yes, although we do see we sort of decompose employment into two, into three or four, uh, shall we say, um, reasons of why, whether, and if you look at the uh, technology, indeed, just that part means that there's been a huge loss of jobs uh, in Asia. Just, but. Other studies don't take into account other things. One of them is relocation, which actually does benefit Asia, but only very little. But the really big benefit comes from the fact that goods are now being produced cheaper and better, and therefore that gives brings income to the people that work there. But also, uh, as a result of this new demand that is created, and most of the demand is coming from within developing Asia, this has created a massive amount of jobs. So on net, there has actually been an increase of jobs, uh, with technology. And uh, finally, the new occupations in industry, which is not true just for Asia, but for most places, is that uh, most of the new data show that uh, a lot of new jobs are being created and a lot of new occupations. So there are there occupations that did not exist before that are now being created uh, as a result of technology. And uh, the only problem there is that we find that most of the jobs that um, uh, are being created, so if you look at the employment change, most of the creation is in people who work in non-routine cognitive jobs so f- usually high skilled workers so the they are have been getting the, the, the not only the employment inc- increase but also higher wage increases in general so this is an area where we think that in the short term uh, the policymakers can do a lot. So there, Valerie, in, in terms of the things that policymakers
2: can, can do there to maximise the benefits, mm-hmm. and I guess to mi- mitigate some of the, um, the problems or the risks that we might see, what kinds of um, interventions or what kinds of strategies do you see as policymakers um, considering or adopting to, to
3: really try to maximise those benefits? Right. Well, there's two. There, there are many that we discussed, but two that we go more in depth in. One of them is education, and uh, it's not once again just spend more on education, which is usually sort of the uh, blanket uh, sort of statement. But it's uh, being more specific about the kinds of skills that are going to be needed for the future workforce. So yes, general ed- education and technical education will continue to be important. Uh, for example, um, the, the, uh, you know, digital, uh, knowing about coding and things like that. But more importantly, training and vocational education is going to have to be, ha- happen more on the job for the specifics of those jobs. Knowing that some of those jobs won't last very long. In other words, during throughout their career, you may be work on a specific issue, but you also have to be very good at learning quickly and being flexible. And then you can move on to the next job where you will also be trained on the specifics of that job, but you will also have to continue learning. So lifelong learning will be important. So anything that, that policymakers can do in that regard. And more short term, uh, one of the things we discussed is having some sort of unemployment insurance or something that would allow the workers that are disproportionately suffering from these technologies uh, to have some a little bit of income while they're training themselves or while they're getting themselves geared up for a new Job, and this is especially true for older workers. Do you you see um,
2: one of the things that we've talked about on the pod in the past is? the 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 policy suggestion that's being put forward by some guy standing is is the leading proponent i think of universal basic income of those kinds of supports um is that something you see as a useful suggestion to support workers through those times um of change and of of, of retraining and then to kind of continue on um or do you see other policy strategies as being more valuable than universal basic income
3: uh, yeah, universal basic income has uh, one um, aspect of it, which is very much in line with what we're saying, uh, which is this idea that, uh, y- y- you know, you shouldn't have to worry about certain aspects of your uh, of, of what you need to, uh, to live with, uh, because your job will be changing so much. So that would be a little bit like the the sort of unemployment insurance sort of scheme that I discussed before, I mean, without going into specifics about how this would work. So in that sense, I think it would be very consistent with the the universal income uh, idea. There's another aspect in Asia, which is very important, uh, which would be good, which is a huge informal uh, economy. In some of the South Asian countries, almost 80 percent, about 80 percent of uh, workers work in an informal economy, So they uh, they would have, whatever scheme would have to take those things into account. But an informal economy is also very digitized and is also going through these things. For example, most of the e-commerce that is happening in in South Asia, and and, and, I'm sorry, in in developing Asia, including, for example, uh, Indonesia and India, is um, happening through, for example, Facebook and Instagram and some of these things. So uh, informal sector that is selling the things through, through these uh, through these medium, and they need a lot of support. So, uh, for example, Malaysia has set up something called the Digital Free Trade Zone, which is basically sort of an incubator where people will get assistance in their small enterprises to set up these these e-commerce shops.
1: You talked a little there about Malaysia's digital. Free Trade Zone, it sounds very interesting. Are, there, uh, are, are countries adapting to the changing nature of employment at an even rate? Are those policy interventions um, being rolled out more successfully in some countries than others? Are there any particular parts of the region that um, need particular support in terms of uh, bringing them up to speed?
3: Well, I think a lot of countries in Southeast Asia and some of the newly industrialized industrialized economies are really benefiting a lot from these things because they are themselves, the types of products and services that they produce are the actually products and services that are expanding. Um, But in terms of policy, I think the countries that have been more successful, that are being able to take on some of the things. And as I mentioned, things are changing so quickly that uh, people are still trying to figure out what's going on before you can decide what to do about it, so to speak. But I think the countries that are being flexible about and taking an open mind about how to deal with some situations, and uh, for example, in, in terms of labor regulation, uh, we're going to ha- the work itself is becoming more flexible so people there's a gig economy and there are all these different types of, of ways a job that now is not the same as a job in 1970s so I think to the extent that policymakers are sort of taking that more into account and 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 seeing how they can come in and help in, in, including through you know a provision of technology and, and infrastructure that would help. What about the the, the road challenges I
2: think that governments often face um, as we move towards a gig economy or that becomes a a much more significant part of the way a society operates, um, and the balancing of flexibility on the one hand, but also things like occupational health and safety standards on the other, um, or um, you know, providing some kinds of benefits to workers that may be around health care, it may be around pension um, savings. What kinds of advice do you have for governments around how they, they balance those things?
3: Right. I mean, occupational uh, work uh, issues that are still, ex- of course, extremely important. Uh, But I think more importantly is the portability of these things. So, for example, that it should not be specific to the company where you work, uh, but that you should be and this is where governments come in, uh, that you should be able to carry these things through your career because people will have to change jobs and you, have to, you want to encourage people to change jobs. You want to encourage people to move into the new types of technology. And if you don't make those things flexible, it makes it very difficult for workers.
2: And you mentioned education as the other part of the picture that's incredibly important.
3: What do you see
2: when you look across the region with the research that you've been doing in terms of the countries that are um, thinking deeply about the nature of their education systems? You know, you talked about on-the-job training, but we also will continue to see formal education systems from primary school onwards. Are you seeing some countries do particularly well in terms of thinking about the nature of education, the way they're educating young people to prepare them for the future, for a a much, much more flexible future?
3: Yeah. I mean, still general, high-quality general education is still very important. And uh, you have countries like Singapore and some of the urban areas in China, uh, Hong Kong, actually being having the highest levels of education. So some countries seem to be doing that very well. And as I say, that will continue to be important. Uh, in terms of uh, training and vocational education, and I, I myself am not an expert, but I think that very much the uh, training has to be more specific to Uh, what is needed in the in the firms and some some countries are having uh, less uh, success in that regard so it will it's not just the quantity of training and vocational education but trying to gear it to be more in the context of what people are doing.
1: Finally technological change is obviously happening at a rapid rate around the region what's your sense of what the next few years and for the region 's workers, that is
3: the million dollar question, of course, because things are changing so quickly, and uh, I think the most important thing to to, uh, d- to do at this regard is to uh, prepare the workers for uh, th- th- these kinds of changes. One of the things that we discuss in the report is uh, unlearning things. people have gotten used to doing things in a certain way. And uh, the older you get, the more difficult it is to uh, think about doing it or even conceptualize it in a different way. And that skill is going to become extremely important. So anything that governments can do uh, through, for example, uh, just uh, campaigns and uh, to, to, to allow people to do that. Um, sometimes there's, there has to be changes in mentality. Um, sometimes people don't have the emotional and intelligence that you might need for a job in the future in customer service, these kinds of things, anything the government can do in that regard.
1: Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time, Anya Basu and Valerie Mercer-Blackman.
4: Thank you very Thank much, you for, you very having much for having us.
1: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that discussion about the Asian Development Bank Outlook report. And thanks again to Valerie and Ananya for their insights. Next, I am delighted to welcome back to the pod. Dr Liz Allen. Hi Liz, how are you?
5: Hello, it's good to be back. Yeah,
1: it's great to have you back. Liz is a demographer and social researcher at the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. Uh, She was previously on the pod talking about the Australian Census back on pod number 19. It feels such a long time ago now. (laughs) Um, Today though, she's here to talk to us about a very interesting event series she's convening at the Australian National University. It's called the Citizen Social Scientists seminar series. Liz what's the series all about?
5: Ah so it's, it's interesting that we the last um, time I was here we talked about census and I think from my work with census and and on on kind of data generally and um, and what we're witnessing kind of on social media in particular um, is that there's a lot of distrust around about data and evidence and and evidence building and, and expertise and who is an expert and and I think that um, in response to that a lot of people are kind of trying to claw back their own um, power and and taking control of perhaps what it is to, to know and, and to feel and experience kind of things and and where does evidence come from and kind of understanding the the construct of, of evidence and Believing that that they're the keeper of evidence themselves, and, and perhaps that's a little bit. I think we've gone too far the other side of concern for for what's happening with with the with data and the creation of information. It's a hot
1: topic, of course. It is, moment.
5: and and from that, I guess, um, and and from a, a you know, we've been seeing over over time um, quite a long time now that graduates that come out of university don't necessarily have the skills to to understand or even to critique. Research this idea of the sniff test, if you like. Um, We we don't we don't seem to have uh, many people in the general public with those skills, and I think that seeing what happened with census and how people really wanted to engage and they wanted to have a say. Um, about what's happening and not have things happen to us anymore i think that um, and alongside that this idea that are we really preparing our, our graduates for for the workforce of the future so here enters um, the idea of the citizen social scientist is that that in actual fact we're all we're all social scientists at heart we have a, a desire to know and we certainly have a bank of evidence and information based on our own experiences it's how to equip people with the toolkit to be able to be good um, citizens social scientists effective ones so so what does evidence mean and that's in fact where we start the, the the seminar series we start by asking a panel of experts what is evidence, and in particular, what is evidence in a post-truth society? So that idea that we, we fear um, um, uh, the information provider, if you like, or we're so sceptical, and, and I think there's, there's elements of, you know, we should be frightened to some degree. Um, but at the same time, I think we've gone a little bit too far the opposite way. And and so by by having this, it's, well, let's have a look. What is evidence in, in a contemporary discourse? How do we understand evidence? Where does good evidence come from? Where can we find it? Where can the general public gain ac- uh, accessibility to it? Um, and, um, you know, there's so much data around. It's just equipping people with the knowledge and the capability to seek it out and use it and then demand more from, from news outlets. I think that that's – it's a win-win, right? So that, that's, what, that's kind of what started it and that's where we're kicking
1: it off. So what does it hope to achieve through the series?
5: Look, right, The series will be a four-part um, four um, uh, process, starting with the idea of, well, what is evidence? And then we'll kind of take people on a journey through kind of, as I said, equipping people with the toolkit that's needed to be able to seek out data, to then be able to look at data. And then to be able to run, you know, this so-called sniff test over um, claims and of, of facts and things like that that are reported in the media. So much that's reported in, in the media at the moment, it's kind of factual but doesn't tell either the whole story or misses nuances. And I'm hoping that through this we'll, we'll get to a point by the end of this year that we'll have a, a bunch of people that, that um, will be engaged with the idea of evidence and, you know, this is where you go to the ABS, this is where you get the information on migration, for example, and um, to counter the argument that we're, we're overpopulated and we're, we're being swamped by migrants, so to speak. You know, the data's there, we can look at it, we can graph it and we can present it and we can mount a good argument or counter-argument to what's been presented to us?
1: I mean I often get the sense that there is a real appetite in the community for evidence and you know understanding what is actually happening in a particular issue. But how have we got to this situation? I mean, yeah. who's to blame? Is it is it the media or is it is it Donald Trump and is alternative facts? <laughs> this
5: is a really interesting one because at the heart we're you know, we're human beings. We we we're inquisitive by nature and um, and often the first go to kind of point of evidence is our own experience, so and that in, that in fact is is a good starting point. It is evidence in its own right, but it's a sample of one right so it kind of leads us to well that's not a good sample size right and that um, our own experiences are important because they help us from being chased by a bear if we once got chased by a bear before, right. But we don't have to be constantly worried about being chased by a bear, particularly if the statistics, let's think about crime statistics, say it's not going to happen. You know, you know. so this idea that um, let's use that kind of, that desire to know and to use evidence, but let's use the right evidence. So, and 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 I think that, you know, this age of Trump, we're getting a desire, a thirst. Our thirst is really peaked at this point where we kind of, well, actually, we've seen so many events: think census, think the same-sex marriage survey in Australia, think um, the migration and the population debate at the moment. That we've had these, you know, a succession of really kind of powerful moments in our history. Think the, you know, Cambridge Analytica at the moment. We we have a thirst for information, a thirst for evidence, but we've got to equip and arm ourselves. with with the most effective way to be able to counter mis- and or disinformation that's presented to us or that we in fact perhaps perpetrate ourselves.
1: I also feel quite relieved that I'm not going to get attacked by a bear on the <laughs> way. You've certainly set my mind at, at rest on that one. But, uh, the, the, so the first event, which is coming up this Tuesday, has got a great yes. panel. It's it got uh, uh, Eric Bagshaw from Fairfax, yes. uh, Jenny Gordon of the Productivity Commission, Danielle Wood from the Grattan Institute, mm. and Glenn Withers of ANU, who was also the uh, founding CEO of Universities Australia. What kind of issues do you think a panel of that kind of mix might touch on?
5: Look, I think the, the diversity of the panel, they come from different perspectives. You know, we've got academia, we've got a research um, uh, researcher, we've got um, uh, the, a media person and government represented. So they're all dealing with evidence in a different way. They're either um, they're, kind of, they're digesting evidence or they're creating evidence, they're communicating and translating it. So they're coming, from, they're coming to the same point of, of, of um, emphasis in different, different ways. And I think that's powerful because it shows that if evidence is different based on how we approach it. And I think what we'll learn from this is that um, no matter who you are, there's a thirst for evidence and a need for information. And based on you know what, data alone is insufficient to to create evidence. It must be transformed somehow um, uh, through an interpretation process to create to go from data to evidence to information. And I think that that's important. That that um, data alone is not sufficient for change. And, and I think that um, if we can give people, um, uh, point them to where the data bit is and equip them with the rest of the stuff to be able to do the, the translation for information and evidence, then we're on a good, good, um, uh, a good pathway to the future to be able to avoid any major kind of mis- or, or disinformation in the future.
1: I suspect this is going to be a pretty popular series with the kind of public appetite we see mm. for, you know, uh, how how to gather evidence and how mm. to understand the evidence that that is that is presented to you. The first of these, as I said, is happening on Tuesday, seventeenth of April, at two p.m. at University House mm-hmm. at ANU. When's the next one after that and can you give us a sense of what it might be about?
5: So the next one I'm hoping will be um, uh, after, after June and uh, we'll see how we track in accordance with the, with the outcome of the first one. Um, I've deliberately structured the event um, on Tuesday next week to ensure that we hear from the panel, we have adequate time for discussion but we also have networking afterwards over free food. Okay, over free food. Free food. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll say that again. It's yeah. free food. Free food. <laughs> Evidence
1: plus free food. I'm there.
5: <laughs> but this, but we need to be able to network and build, a, you know, a group if you like of citizen social scientists, so that we can get in touch with 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 each other and strike a conversation that will hopefully then filter through the community. This is not just for academics or people academically minded. This is for anyone who's interested in the idea of evidence or a better informed media, a better informed government, a better informed election process, local council. Think about it. You know, the, the, the possibilities are, are, are endless. Everyone, anyone is welcome. You've got to register, um, hop online and, and head to um, ANU events um, and register and um We'll see you there. That
1: sounds like a really great series. Liz, thanks so much for coming in to tell us about it and uh, and great to have you back on the pod again.
5: Hopefully I'll be on soon.
1: Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> hope so too. I hope so too. Yeah, For those of you listening, you can follow Liz on Twitter. She is Dr. Demography. Uh, you can find out more about the work of the ANU Centre for Social Research Methods at csrm.cast, that's C-A-S-S, dot a n u. dot edu. dot au, or you can follow them on Twitter, where they are at What Aust Thinks, right? What Australia thinks. Mm. Wonderful. Thanks again, Liz. Thank you. Welcome back, uh, Sharon. That. Uh, Event that Liz was telling us about sounds like it will be really interesting.
2: It certainly does. It sounds fantastic.
1: Well, we're keen to hear your thoughts on what we've talked about today. Don't forget, you can now email us at podcast at policyforum or tweet us at apps policy forum or give us a thumbs up or whatever else happens on. Facebook these days beyond uh, wholesale data harvesting. You can find us there as Asia Pacific Policy Society. Now, here's an exciting new innovation to the podcast. We are going to have a look at some of your comments that you've left us on previous pods. Exciting, eh, Sharon?
2: It is. It's great to see people engaging. and It's great to to read some of those comments. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Okay, so on the Time to Tax Robots pod which we did with Roberta Mann Dan O'Hanlon on Facebook Hi Dan Hi Dan Uh, He writes, if robots are given real artificial intelligence, and he's put real in capitals to emphasise, you know, it is real artificial intelligence, then they'll be able to feel emotions like indignation and entitlement. That's when we'll be in for real trouble. What do you reckon, Sharon?
2: Look, I I think, you know, robots with a sense of entitlement or a sense of indignation is is a whole new world. But Dan does raise something that I think lots of people are talking about and thinking about that, but is fundamentally important, and that is the that so often the technology runs ahead of the ethics the technology runs ahead of our thinking about what does this really mean for for our lives, for our societies for our communities and I guess what Dan's raising is what does this mean for the things that we're creating and at what point are are they no longer things? So um, I think a really interesting question that takes us to the heart of ethics And, and I think that's a conversation we need to be having much more often and much more deeply and perhaps before the technology runs ahead
1: yeah look personally I think if robots are going to uh, get feelings like indignation and entitlement then they also have to get you know those uh, less pleasant uh, human emotions like I don't know disappointment or regret
2: (laughs) indeed
1: Uh, okay so moving on to the podcast that we did with Kristen Vella Ragnostotti which was on pirates politics and uh, and policy Phoebe Maguire hi Phoebe hi Phoebe Writes, new economic models are nice ideas, but I just don't see them catching on. By the time the world adopts a wisdom economy, the Earth's climate will be beyond repair and only the richest 1% will be around to enjoy it. That's quite a gloomy prediction for Phoebe there, isn't
2: it? Look, it is a gloomy prediction and you can see why Phoebe is is saying that. Um, But of course, if things are so dire and the climate is beyond repair, then maybe even wealth won't help that richest one to enjoy it. But I think the point that Phoebe makes is, is, I guess, around the pessimism that some people feel. But it also, I guess, makes me think about the optimism and the enthusiasm of someone like Vala, and the importance of those people actually saying, we don't have time, you know, we need to do this now. And not just talking about it, but putting a political party together, running for office, really trying to to significantly shift things. And it's only if people do engage in the way that Vala and, and her colleagues within the Pirates Party have that we'll be able to move away from that pessimism to seeing a glimmer of hope.
1: Phoebe is right in, a, in the sense that the obstacles do appear considerable, though. I mean, to the outsider, you know, politics and the, and the world of policy sometimes moves at a glacial pace, you know, and what we're talking about there is pretty fundamental change, right? Yeah, look,
2: I think that's absolutely right. And I think this is where you see people generally and perhaps young people particularly... Um, being incredibly disillusioned with and disengaging from processes of formal politics. And that doesn't mean that they're not political, that they're not active, that they're not concerned. But I think there is a real dismay around the way in which formal politics is, is playing out. And I think it's beholden on our political leaders to to actually listen to the comments of someone like Phoebe and to recognise that they need to start behaving differently and to exhibit leadership on things that that impact on all of us and on issues that we can't wait for.
1: That was a great comment. So thanks for that, Phoebe. Now, moving on to talking about the podcast that we did with Sally Engle-Merry, which is on uh, tackling violence against women. Len Cox on Facebook. Hello, Len. Hi, Len. He writes, it's quite a long comment, so I'm only going to read a little bit of it here. He writes, sadly, violence is the weak point in our human psyche, and it mostly comes to the fore when everything else goes wrong in one's life. From my observation, some of the contributing factors seem to originate, originate from post-traumatic stress, poverty, poor emotional order and drug and alcohol use. The film industry adds to the problem with this promotion of the bad boy image and the alpha male as the norm model for our young men to follow. What do you reckon about that, Sharon? Look,
2: I think Len's comment covers an enormous amount of ground there in terms of the kinds of contributing issues that that we see when it comes to violence, um, and I guess highlight some of the the challenges and complexities. I think what I what I think about in response to Len's comment is the value of the research of people like Sally Engelmeyer, who who um, Lynn is referring to there in her pod on tackling violence against women and the importance of the the research that Sally and others do that bring us deep understanding of what the issues really are, of what some of the issues are in different contexts, in different socioeconomic contexts, in different cultural contexts. Um, I think we we can all point to the things that we really worry about in the world, but we can sometimes make the wrong assumptions about causation and about correlation and connection. So I think it's really important on these issues that matter so much to bring in the research so that we better understand what the issues are and then are able to respond rather than feeling overwhelmed by a society that may have feel like it's gone off the rails. You know, we need that understanding.
1: Yeah, right. Well, it's a very interesting point, Len. So thanks for that. Uh, also on the Tackling Violence Against Women pod, Sashini Muller. Hi, Sashini. Hi, Sashini. Uh, on Twitter said it was a great podcast on violence against women and where men fit into those discussions. That was one of the more interesting things that, um, that popped up in there, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, look, I thought it was just a terrific conversation with Sally. If, if you've not listened to it, people, you really should listen to that one. It was a great conversation. Um, But I think one of the very interesting parts of that was that discussion around where men fit in um, and we need to be thinking about those issues. We need to be thinking about masculinity and what's being modelled and taught to boys, just as we need to think about what's being modelled and taught to girls. Um, and we need to think about the complexities of these issues. So, you know, Martin, I know you asked that question about what about the men, and we're a little bit hesitant. You know, should have had the answer. I was, I was question? worried. I
1: didn't know what kind of answer would come, I've got to say.
2: But I think it was such an important question because it opened. Um, open the way to a really fundamentally important conversation.
1: Well, that was a very nice comment, Sashini. Many thanks for that. And please, everyone, keep those comments coming in. Um, as we mentioned at the start of the pod, you can send in your thoughts, questions, disagreements, whatever you've got, to our email address, podcast at net. And we'd love to hear what you've got to say. And we will do our best to respond to them on upcoming podcast. Speaking of which, next week on the pod, we are going to be taking a look at an issue which I know Sharon and I feel both feel quite strongly about, which is the thorny issue of housing affordability. What are your thoughts on that, Sharon?
2: Oh, look, this is such a fundamentally important issue, Martin. Um, and it's great that we're going to be begin having a conversation on the, the pod about it. No, you know, I think there are really Deep issues around um, intergenerational equality here, um, and what the what the prospects are for young people who are, you know, looking to rent, thinking about buying a house, um, you know, and simply can't afford it. Um, I've just come back from doing some research um, in the southern part of Tasmania and in Hobart you know a a city that's been quite affordable in the past we're now seeing um, housing affordability at a point where we've got families camping in the showgrounds there for long periods of time so you know children growing up with not just their parents unable to, to afford to buy a house but unable to afford to rent a house and this you know these periods of homelessness and precarity so it's a terrible situation that really needs to be addressed in in, in a fundamental way
3: yeah,
1: it's also the incredible levels of debt that people are taking on Wednesdays you do get themselves onto the the housing market
2: yeah indeed so I think this is a really important really important pod that we're about to do
1: yeah well look if listeners if you've got any questions about housing affordability we want to hear them email them through to us at podcast.policyforum.net we will ask the best ones um, also another bit of quick pod news we are planning our first ever live podcast i only told sharon about this this morning so when i say we're planning i wouldn't say we're far advanced with our planning i don't really know how it's going to work at all but we will let you know details in the coming weeks so keep listening to the pod to find out more you excited about that one sharon
2: this is hugely exciting if just a little bit daunting and terrifying
1: (laughs) it's a little bit daunting and terrifying i couldn't agree more on that Uh, so keep letting us know your thoughts uh, you can email us at podcast@policyforum.net. You can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum, Or you can find us on Facebook Where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society We'll be back next week with another pod But until then from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio
2: And goodbye from me